My name is Bruce. I'm an alcoholic. Little rowdies from Fargo are here. A bunch of misfits, that's what they are. That's why they form such a strong little group up there. They're all crazy. And that's why we have a second step in our program. Um, because of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 steps and... Uh, Four of the meanest old men you're ever going to want to meet. I haven't found it necessary to take a drink since October 10th, 1980. She is happier about that than I am. If I could have found a way not to stop drinking, I would have stayed drinking. Um, But drinking uh, beat me into a state of reasonableness. And I had never been there before in my life till the last day I sucked whiskey down my pipe. And, uh, and that just amazes me at today. I, I, uh, I'm so pleased that, that you have some time in this meeting. There are people here with time, old timers. I, I, once in a while, at some place, and I'm still standing up at 25 years, and I'm the only one, and I'm thinking, holy buckets, where are they? It does not feel good, I don't think, for me at least, to be the oldest person in the room. I love having people here ahead of me. Now, I'll tell you, we honor uh, newcomers uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and we should continue to do that because newcomers bring to our doors the very thing that we need to stay together and to stay sober. So you can't put a bigger value on any one person than that, unless you're me. Here's why. I believe that's true, what I just said, but I'll tell you what I believe. If it had not been for the old-timers in AA when I came here, I wouldn't be here. Everything. Everything that ever seemed like it was miraculous in my sobriety, and there have been numerous times, just unexplainable things that happen that make you go, well, would you who'd have thunk that, (laughs) has had the voice or the hand of somebody who's been ahead of me involved in the miracle. And I don't know if that's true for everybody, but I know that's true for me. So I guess having said that, everybody from 33 years down to three days has a great deal of importance in my life in Alcoholics Anonymous. I really don't know which one of you I could live with or without. I don't know who's going to say the next thing that I need to hear to help me get into the next day of sobriety the way I need to be in the next day of sobriety. And sometimes it comes from people that are eight months sober and sometimes it comes from people that are 38 years sober. When I'm in question, I call the most recent old man that runs my game in Los Angeles and ask him what I should do. And I still do that today because I believe that's what I need to do. I've been trained to be that way, and I'm so grateful that I was around a bunch of hard-nosed old fools that told me to shut up when I got here because it saved my bacon. I'm, I could tell you stories that would just, you know, I, Bob says he got a lot of explaining to do. I look at it as making corrections. She was right on the money. It's been a great roundup. Um, 
I know it's your second year because when I got the flyer, it was the second annual. And uh, <laughs> that's called having a profound grasp on the obvious. <laughs> Rock solid deal. But uh, whatever you got to do here in Alexandria, keep doing this. And I've learned some reasons why over the years. Because we'll probably come back here someday because we'll probably say, hey, you know, let's drive up that thing in Alex. I see it's going on. Um, saw it in a flyer in the city. Saw it on the website someplace, some events thing on a district or area thing or intergroup office or something. And, and we'll show up one day and just buy a registration and have a great weekend, kick back, drink some coffee, and talk smart and act smart. In my case, it's just an act to be the smart part anyway. Um, and I'm going to see some people here if it's nine years from today that we're here tonight. And that's something you don't get a chance to understand in AA very well inside of your home group. You get to see who's there and who's not and kind of who's around your AA community. And it's so nice to go to places out of, you know, around the country. Chuck does it a lot. And uh, uh, see faces that you've met before and seen before. Joe, my groupie, is over here. She figured out this afternoon when I got coffee that three or four times she's been someplace I thought four times. And, uh, you know, that stuff doesn't seem important until you've been here a while. And then it all becomes important. Everything becomes important. It's just like that goofy book they sell you when you come here, the big book. Isn't <laughs> that something? But I'm going to tell you what, you know, it's my case no different than yours. I, every time I read it for years, still today, I don't I didn't really see that that way before. I, for a while, as you don't remember, nothing in there. But it's been a good roundup, and keep doing your roundup. Whatever you got to do to do it. It's a little bit of work. It's once a year. You get to kind of hone it down to a little science and get things put together and take a shot on the committee and plan for a busy weekend and get up early and make coffee or do whatever you got to do. It doesn't make any difference. And I'll tell you what happens. Good for a guy like me that might stop here again someday and be able to take in a good roundup, but... What happens is whatever production you do is a production of Alcoholics Anonymous or Al-Anon. Al-Anon and AA don't happen. They're produced by the people that are there. They're, the production happens at the meeting. It happens because somebody called somebody on the phone and said, you're doing okay. So get in the production line here and keep doing this because it's great. I uh, tickled when I got that flyer and saw Chuck was on there and Sandy and I, I you know, I've heard Chuck talk three, four different times. and. Um, He's in my top ten Al-Anon list because he conveys... He, I don't like you that well. I mean, you know, not special like you, top ten. But he conveys information. And, you know, I thought at first time I heard him, I thought, well, we're kind of in the same age bracket. But when he starts talking about Aquanet, she's banging on me and I'm banging on her because... I mean, that was the hallucinogen of the day in the 50s and 60s. good stuff and uh, I had a spiritual breakthrough this weekend really because of Chuck and Sandy they don't even know about it yet but I'm going to tell you I finally can imagine Sandy dressed in clothes instead of drunk naked sitting in a tree <laughs> it's not a big thing but it's going to help me somehow
And uh, I've known Kenny really almost since he's been sober. Um, and he's a serious A guy. Sponsors, he's got a sponsor, he goes to his meetings. What he said he did and what he said he does is what he did and what he does. You can rely on him. Good guy. Dustin has become the poster child of mothers everywhere this morning. <laughs> he got done talking, those Alan on women were shoving the drunks out of the way. Oh, Dustin. <laughs> We love your mother. Oh. I just want to tell you that I love my mother a lot. I hurt her and I'm sorry. Let's start with this roll right here after the meeting. Uh, I, uh... I never planned to uh, have all the things happen to me that happened to me. I, uh, John talked about it and talked. She said, I, I think you really meant to stop and have a couple of drinks with the boys and go home. And that's really, I did that for a long, long time. For years, actually. I, I said it that way quite often. I, I said, I'm going to stop and have a couple and go home. I had a lawn to mow and I liked my lawn mowed. I think sitting on the front porch after you've mowed the lawn on a 72-degree summer evening and you can smell that new-cut grass and it looks like a park around your house, that's a nice feel. Um, couldn't get it done. I, I, I didn't notice what happened, really. I, the only thing I can remember noticing about my drinking is, is I'm like a lot of people. The first time or two you drink, you get dizzy and stupid and puke on your own Reeboks, and I did all that. Um, there are friends. You always have people around. They're experienced at this, and they help you make corrections because they want you to be there. They want you to have fun. They want you to have a good time. That's, nobody's there to cause mayhem and drink and rob banks and ruin the lives of innocent people. Just have a little fun. Just have a few drinks. And, uh, oh, of course you got drunk, you dummy. You drank a whole quart of whiskey the first time you drank? I said, well, yeah, all but three sips. Yeah, I shared. <laughs> um, and I did. The first time I ever drank, I drank a quart of whiskey, and I didn't really have any clue what that was going to be like because I'd watched people drink whiskey and beer and... They had a good time, and they were shucking and jiving, and funerals and weddings. It didn't make any difference. After whatever was done, they were drinking. And it was like that every place. Every, seemed to me, I don't know if it's true, really, but I, it's true because I can go up and down the alleys and the streets in my mind, and I can see the houses and who lived in them and where they had kids and who drank and who didn't. It seemed like everybody where I lived drank. They, you'd come home from work and eat supper and have a couple beers. You'd, Stop at the tavern after work and have a couple beers and go home. Mow your lawn, I guess. <laughs> I, uh, I thought maybe um, it had worked because of just a few short months later, I could drink eight or nine beers, and I was still up and running and doing good. And I thought for a long time it was some magic that had happened. Um, you know, People said to me a lot, and I'm sure to some of you a lot, how do you drink that much? If I drank that much, I'd be sick for three days. 
I always want to ask them, do you know anybody that drinks that much? And if they mention a family member, I send them to these four ladies that were standing up here in hell now with 32 years. I have some friends you should meet. Because <laughs> if they know people that drink like that, it's bad. I thought, for a while, you know, I, I thought it was a talent I had developed. <laughs> no, I really believed that for a long time. I thought I had some control. Of course, we all do. We think we can control and manage and enjoy our drinking. I turn out to be one of the people that if I'm managing my drinking, I don't enjoy it at all. And if I'm enjoying it, I can't control it at all. That's really what happens. I don't know what happens. I start to drink. I'm going to have a drink. I'm going to have another little drinky-poo, and I'm going home to doll face and the children and mow the lawn, and I don't get there till 2 in the morning. It was early on for me. For a while, I didn't have to care. I didn't have a wife to go home to. I didn't have any kids to go home to. And, and I remember meeting Joanne. Um, the guy that she was going to the movie with that, and I was a guy I graduated from high school with. And... Uh, she was brunette, and I like brunettes, and uh, so she kind of qualified. And I was really sort of just <laughs> oh, like you guys weren't young once and really didn't have big set of standards. Let's see, could I get a financial statement from you? What do your parents do? What kind of money do you think you'll inherit when you're dead? What do you like this? You like who does that? You don't do it where I live if you're drunk and you're 19. <laughs> and I was. 19 at the time and usually drunk. But anyway, I wasn't particularly too hammered out of shape that night, but I came to give her roommate Kathy a ride to work because her car had broke down. And then the next day, excuse me, on Friday night I gave her a ride to work and that's when I met her. And then Sunday I called to see if Kathy wanted to go out and drink. She liked to drink a little bit. We were having a little jam session at a place called the Pine Lodge and I thought she might enjoy some fellowship with some nice people. <laughs> She wasn't, and she was, and, but I remember when I said, I told her Friday night, well, I said, I'm going to come back for you. So it's just, I was so cute. I mean, <laughs> seemed cool at the time, but I, uh, I had this ability to be able to drink. Um, and that you can tell from her story, we, we hadn't really been hardly dating, and I'm busting glasses and kicking down doors, and well, I knock. She didn't answer, I kicked the door down. <laughs> Impatient, I guess. I, drunk. The guy that later saved my bacon for the real deal in Alcoholics Anonymous told me that because I didn't have a lot of patience. I was irritable all the time. Um, and... Um, he said, patience? He said, you have more patience than anybody I've met in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I just kind of, as I've been impatient all my life, and everybody told me I was impatient. And he said, it's because you've never used any of them yet. <laughs> if you're new, like three, six, nine months, couple weeks, try to remember the people that were old timers standing up and stay away from them. They know stuff about you before they meet you. <laughs> How you doing? Fine. Don't lie to me. <laughs> I'm thinking, how do they know this stuff? But there's good news and bad news for you folks that are a little bit new tonight. There are only two dangerous times in sobriety. The first three months and all the time after that. <laughs> so like when you kick through five months, I guess you're halfway home or something. 
I drank and we argued. Uh, we argued and then I drank. I, I, I didn't know what was going wrong. I had no idea what was the matter. Um, I would tell you, I, I sponsor a lot of people. And I would tell anybody that I sponsor that's not married, not in a relationship, that it might be in their best interest if they just worked on their sobriety for a while. Don't fall in lust with somebody. Which, you know, God, you might as well go up here and talk to the big holy statue. It never works. <laughs> If I would have been <clears throat> single, I would have dated newcomers. I'd have dated in three weeks. I'd have, mostly because somebody would have suggested that I not do that. I, <clears throat> I just couldn't get it why you would take any direction from anybody. I've had people since I've been five years old running my life. <clears throat> school teachers, Sunday school teachers, deans of men, school principals, ministers, psychologists, marriage therapists, psychiatrists, parents, my older sister. <laughs> I was upset that you should be able to tell somebody what to do with their life. I never liked it. I was oppositional. If I was diagnosed today, I would have oppositional defiant disorder. God, they got a name for everything now, you know that? Since I got married to her, it's post-trauma stress disorder. <laughs> we uh, had this first son, Terry, who she talked about. Um, and as I recall, you know, the order of life is like you meet, you sort of, when you meet love relationships, you really kind of meet them with your eyes first. You just kind of... <laughs> Followed quickly by a feeling. It's usually lust. And you have to disguise that quickly as love. But you get engaged, date, do all that stuff, then you get married, then you have children. This woman is a... I wouldn't be here if it weren't for her. I mean, she has a great hand in the fact that I got sober. And, um, and Al-Anon has a great hand in the fact we've stayed married because A and Al-Anon have the same 12 steps and they've been able to keep us from pointing the lasers at each other so much. And we can go to work our programs or call our sponsors or do what we need to do, but she broke a record. She had a pregnancy full term that only lasted six months from the day we got married till she delivered. One time in her Al-Anon meeting, she, they were kind of talking about that. Who was pregnant when they got here? You know, they hush tones. You don't never talk too loud about that. <laughs> there was 11 women in that Al-Anon meeting, nine hands. I just, I, I was happy to hear about that because I felt a part of again. It was a breakthrough that day. But um, we were married and I worked and drank and... Um, she caught another kick.
case of pregnancy. Uh, you know, I'll tell you guys, uh, maybe some of you know this, it's a better thing really if they're not willing to make up with you right away the next day. Um, because it prevents oh, up to 18 or 20 children per family. <laughs> I think we made up that day, I'm not sure. But I'll tell you something, here's what I tell those guys I sponsor. Try to, try to just work on your sobriety and just try to chill out and just try to do what you got to do here. Um, you're fighting a deal that's been kicking you around bad for the last whatever number of years. If you had a clue you wouldn't come here, you'd just fix it up and keep doing whatever you're doing without the problem. So I think that you're here for the right reason and I'm glad you're here, but try not to date and just try not to date. And then I, you know, it's five, six of them might come someplace where I'm talking and, and I'm telling my story and I'm telling them, I fell in love with Joanne the first time I laid my eyes on her. And that's absolutely the truth. And in a week, we were talking about getting married. And, and it, was, it was military time, and I'd enlisted in something called the Delayed Entry Program, and, um, and then I met her. My timing was never quite right either. But I, uh, I had to go in the military, but I, uh, we were going to go to Canada and get married because the military can't get at you and I'd work something out through a series of high-powered attorneys to get me off the dotted line and I just I fell in love before in my life I think we all do from time to time or we think it's a love or we call it puppy love I don't know I don't know but I'll tell you what when it knocks you completely senseless for days at a time you know you're there most of the time that doesn't work out very good in the long run and I would say today that ours has worked out very good in the long run but when you put together 12 years of alcoholism and fighting and threatening, her throwing whole kettles of hot chili at me, uh, me pulling knives on her and chasing her down the hallway with a loaded deer rifle because she was, wouldn't listen, you have to consider that we really had to do a lot of work in our marriage that probably a lot of other marriages didn't have to do. So I'm still a fan of do it this way, meet them, date them, Engage with them. Just get married. Do it in that order. Just do it in that order. It just doesn't always work. It doesn't make any difference. You know, we're all God's kids, and I'm going to tell you something. God knows we're going to make a lot of mistakes, and boy, we made ours at our house. Lots of them. We still make some mistakes. But we've been provided with a recovery program that allows us to fix them, change them, correct them, get help with them, whatever we do. And it's just rooms full of people like this where we go to get the answers all the time. You know, it's just I'm so grateful it happens all over because it's a it's been uh, a gift. One of my new guys said, "Hey, this sobriety thing is a free gift, man." I said, "Yeah, it is, but all gifts are free. Sometimes." He's <clears throat> <laughs> trying to get his attention. We were really talking about another matter when this came up, but uh, but I like messing with them a little bit new guys, because they like being messed with they understand you're messing with them they don't know why or what the answer is but they all been messed with 10,000 times a year out there in that world they came from and they somehow know that if you're messing with them it's all going to be for fun and you love them they know you care about them so I mess with them a little bit Brian and come up here to talk and, and uh, he said where are you going? He's got like 30 days, 27 days. I said, well, I've got to go up to Alexandria, Minnesota and talk at a roundup. 
He said, what's the roundup? I said, oh, you don't know. So I told him what a roundup was. It was a big party. You get some people to come talk and eat more than you should and drink coffee till you can't uncross your eyes and go to bed, <laughs> try to sleep and get up tomorrow and do it again. It's really fun. <laughs> and he said to me, he said, oh, Oh, little kind of side job, little extra cash on the weekend, little part-time job thing. I said, no, they don't pay you. <laughs> Did you go there and do that for nothing? Yep. I said, that's what we do here. He said, really, is that the only reason you go there? I said, no, the other reason is just to get away from you. <laughs> and he laughed. And we got him. He's in. When you can laugh, you get to the door. You get to the door. You're the keys on. So we drank and went through all of the hideous things that Joanne told you we did and a whole lot more. And I thought her memory was right accurate tonight. Um, I was dropping my pants. She said, I'll go. I think that's just perfect. Um, I don't really... I don't really think I had any thoughts about smashing glasses against the wall, undressing out in front of her apartment on the main street out there. I, don't, I just never considered if that would be good or bad or right or wrong or if I could get arrested for that. I never gave it a thought. And it's one of the things that one of the guys that tried to get my brain back with me helped me see. And he said, you do that stuff without conscious thought because the core of you is self-centered. It becomes about you so fast, you don't think what you're doing sometimes. You don't think about what the consequences might be. And certainly, you wouldn't think about the consequences it may bring to other people, Brucey. Oh, and I hate people like that that are right, because there's just no argument. And I want to argue with you a little bit. See, I want to, I want to debate with you. I'm pretty smart. I got a lot of IQ points. When I get too smart now, the sponsor that I have today says, Emerson, dummy up. <laughs> I was just going to. Yeah. So we went over to Minnesota and we started off, I was managing for a Midland cooperative there and it just didn't look like it was going to be uh, high-end bucks ever and I had an opportunity to buy the local uh, gas station, bought that, um, kind of like cars, I sort of like that stuff, I didn't care about much of that, I just wanted to make a lot of money and uh, figured I could do that and, uh, and I did. I should someday, I mean, I can remember that in 1970, I paid myself $37,000. And that's a lot of money in 1970, because gasoline was 35.9 a gallon, I remember that, and you could go buy a hamburger for 69 cents a pound, a loaf of bread for 29 cents, and she was a pretty good time. And at the end of the year, I'd have to borrow money to pay the taxes. And the taxes weren't that big a deal. And I never could figure that out. And, and I thought, you know, I had a bookkeeper guy, and he said, taking too much money out here. He said, what you're doing is, he said, you're robbing yourself. And he said, you can do that to another place, and you'll never notice the absent money, and they might, and then you get arrested, you go to jail. 
But he said, when you do it yourself, nobody comes to arrest you. You just go broke. And five years later, four and a half, I was trying to explain to a federal judge in a bankruptcy court in Duluth about the bad luck and the high gas prices and the lines, people waiting for fuel, and the fact these guys were going to build a car wash in my station and never did, and I lost all that income. And that's what happened here. And, and I'll tell you, he, his, the look on his face matched the look on hers 10,000 times. I just, he didn't buy a nickel's worth of it. And we stole out of there in the dark of night with whatever we could get, and it wasn't much. I think Joanne described it as kids' beds and a dinette set. And started over, and I drank the farm up. And I drank the farm up when we got back to Wisconsin. And um, I owed the IRS a lot of money. I, I would have paid them, but I just didn't have the money. And uh, they have a policy over there of never forgetting that you owe the money. And I spent a long time. I owed them 18 grand when we got sober, and I owed a lot of other people a lot of money, and all those small bills were due the day that I got sober. And I really didn't plan to get sober. Um, uh, she called this hot 800 line, whatever it was, crisis line. And at 2.30 in the morning, because she was nuts. <laughs> and, and she describes that guy well, he, he really saved our lives, our marriage, and, and we've had our lives and our marriage saved numerous times since by people just like him. But uh, what I can tell you about that guy is he was a five-year sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he called me. I didn't call AA. AA made a house call. They called me up. And that didn't happen all that much. I think from time to time it does, but not so much out of the clear blue. You know, our book really says pretty much not to do that if your prospect isn't interested or just find another one to work with. Well, he didn't know if I was interested or not, I guess, so he called to check in on that. And uh, he's a pretty nice guy, soft-spoken. You know, I, I thought he was probably like Six one and big guy with this deep soft voice. Not oh God, his name was Orlin. Now the name gives you a hint here. Um, he's a little skinny, wiry guy with hardly no hair, and he had one eye that looked off that direction and glasses that were kind of crooked. And that's how he looked when I met him, and he still looks that way today. He's still alive. He moved to Texas for a long time, and he's back in Wisconsin. He lives in Osseo, Wisconsin, as a matter of fact. Um, but I owe that guy my life. And he, he talked to me, and, and I, he, he th well, your wife's pretty concerned. And, yeah, 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 I know. That's the way they are. They get paid for that, you know. Um, <laughs> and then it, he was pretty nice. Yeah, he said, yeah, well, you may not think about it. And they call the next day. And they call the next day. And he's nice. I mean, he's just, you can't start an argument with this guy. He's nice. He doesn't give you any room at all to lever him out of the equation a bit. And uh, so I, I'm rooming with a guy that sells booze for a living. He worked for a liquor company. And after you get mad and leave your wife and say, when I figure out what's the matter with this marriage, I'll come back and tell you. Um, I mean, you know, it says that alcohol is cunning, baffling, and powerful. By that time... Baffling was a lifestyle for me. I just didn't know anything else. It's just I didn't have a clue. It's amazing. Um, I 
told these guys that I was hanging out with and drink. I said, this Christ, this crazy guy calls me up and says, eh, I'm so worried about you. And, nah, nah, nah. And I, I got to get out of here. So I told Mike, I said, I'm moving. I, he said, where are you going? I said, I don't know. I'll find a spot. So I left his house with my little bag of clothes. You know, it's kind of like a on a stick. Which I, I didn't have much with me. And uh, I was driving across Eau Claire and I thought, I know I'll go over and stay on Bud's sofa. Him and I drink together. We always go to the Twins Brewer game when it's in Minneapolis, get totally incapacitated. Um, he'll, he'll, I can stay on his sofa. Went over there, knocked on his door. There's four or five guys there. They're sitting around doing what we do. Um, I said, hey, listen, I, I got to, can I stay on your couch for three, four, five days so I find a place to get a place or move in? It's a little problem at home. And I had to, I just, I don't think I can live with her anymore. I don't know what the hell's the matter with her, but uh, it's always, you know, not my fault. Um, yeah, come on in. You want a beer? Yeah. I had a beer. I had, I'd been there, what I think was 10 or 15 minutes, phone rang, he goes off to answer it, we're drinking beer, he comes back in the other room, he says, it's for you. I said, nobody knows I'm here. It's not for me. No, he said, he asked, Bruce Everson there? This, nobody. I, not only did nobody know where I was going, I don't think anybody other than Mike knew I was going to move out of there. And I took the phone. Hello. This is Arlen. <laughs> this soft, loving voice gone. Listen, you can't run away from this deal. He said, your kids have more on the ball. And then he said a lot of things I can't say. Um, shut the tape off for a minute. No. <laughs> and he said, you're not worth my time. And he said, if you ever change your mind about your drinking or think you've got a problem or need some help and another list of stuff, why don't you give me a call? My office is at such and such an address, and I don't remember, it's Graham Avenue in Eau Claire. And he said, you can even stop by my office. He said, I'll tell you what, losers like you don't even need an appointment at my office. You just drop in and tell my secretary that you're here to see me, and I will cancel my schedule and see you immediately. Click! Oh, if I'd have had his number, I'd have called him back. Well, I was kind of glad I was rid of him. And, and I always loved Bill's story because when, when the Oxford closer and Abby came for the last visit to Bill and really hammered him into the corner with his drinking, Bill did just what I did or I did what Bill did and a lot of us have. I went on one three-day ripping, blow your mind drunk, stay drunk. I'm going to prove to me or somebody that this is not what's wrong with me. And on Monday, I was on the way down to my favorite watering hole, and I went down Graham Avenue, and I got in front of that guy's office. Never had a thought about it. I crossed a bridge that's 100 yards short of his office. Never thought about it crossing the bridge. That's where he is. I'd kill him if I could get my hand. Never had a thought. Just pulled right in the parking lot. Shut the car off. Still didn't have much thought. Went in. Said, let's see Arlen. So just a minute. I'll get him. Can I give him your name? Yeah, Thomas Bruce Everson. I thought, 
he'll sit. He knows he's messed with me. He, he probably won't even show his little face out of that door. <laughs> All right, come bouncing right on up. Come on in and sit down. He said, what are you here for? I said, well, you know, well, no, not really. You're here, but what are you here for? What do you, what do you need? How can I help you? Well, I want to talk to you a little about this drinking thing. So we went back in his office, and he spent an hour, and he never really asked me any more questions much about my drinking. He didn't have to, of course. The reconnaissance crew had provided him with way more than he needed to know. <laughs> she went off to Al-Anon. I heard about that. I told her, if you go back to that Al-Anon meeting, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> well, I meant it. That's a threat. That is bad stuff. You can't go over there. Anybody can go to an Al-Anon meeting. I'm a hotshot marketing for a company in New York. Just look, when you go home tonight, look in the phone book under hotshot marketing executives, alcoholic. See if you see a listing. Hmm. Lose our job. People will find out. I mean, you know, like a week before that, I'm whizzing between two parked cars on a busy street in Eau Claire. People are blowing their horns. <laughs> now I'm going to go to AA. <laughs> He told me a story, and that is exactly what he told me, nothing more, nothing less. I learned much later that what happened to me was I identified with what he said. That's what we call it here. We identify. I can relate to that. Sometimes we'll say that. It's like, wow. And then he got this little tin-looking brass thing out of his pocket. He had a five-year chip. And it, it really seemed special to him. And I well, I'm kind of glad for you, you know, it's nice. <laughs> and uh, he said, listen, you're a pretty sick guy. And he said, I don't think you know how sick you are. But he said, your skin color is yellow. And he said, that is not good. And he said, you're, um, by then, things I told him a few things, like the people that would sometimes come in our kitchen and talk out there that she could not hear ever gaming with me. I'd go out and check. I must have got out before I got there, so I figured. I told him some of that stuff, and he said, you need to be hospitalized, and why don't you think about it? And I did, and we talked um, a couple of days later, and uh, I told him that I'd be willing to go to the hospital, and I did. And um, I, I went to this place over in Prescott, Wisconsin is a little specialty hospital called St. Cradle Hospital, and they have they treat mental patients there. In fact, they have some residents there all the time, and and alcoholics. And at that time, they treated codependency, and uh, they just uh, whatever's going, good place. I, I remember uh, they had a nurse there. She's that's who checks you in. I came my little bag, walking in there. And, she had one of those beautiful white nursing caps on. I guess they don't have to wear them anymore. I think it should be a law. Uh, nurses, if there's any nurses here, I don't mean that you'd have to do that, but it just makes them, you can tell who the nurses are. It's like nuns. You can't tell what, a nun from, well, you just can't tell which ones are nuns anymore. I'm not, you know, I'm not Catholic. I was raised in the Lutheran church, and, and I have always, thought 
that habit was mysteriously beautiful. And I think nursing uniforms looked like that. And I just grew up in the time when that was all around, and I was mad when they quit doing it. But um, I, uh, I saw a nurse, and it was the first split second of ease I felt when I got there. And uh, so I went over to her, and I said, I'm here. I check ins. Orlin guy made all the arrangements. Oh, she said, welcome. You must be Bruce. I said, yes, I am. She said, well, she said, are you a druggie, a drunk, or are you crazy? <laughs> she was within inches of being reported to some nursing association. I, I mean, we wile about bedside manner with doctors, but they're not even too bad. I sponsor a couple of them. Um, I uh, I stayed there and kind of left mentally every day, but didn't. I, and I'll tell you something. Here's how messy I was. I couldn't really write or make very well full sentences that contained a thought that would start at the beginning of the sentence and end at the beginning of the sentence. When I was doing really good, I would go through part of a thought in a sentence and end the sentence with a completely different thought. They were worried. I didn't know. I didn't, you don't know. They, I mean, you know, people look at you funny when you talk that way, but you don't know. What? 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 And I was messed up. And I had, I did not know that at any moment, any day, I could have just got up and said, I've had it with this place. I'm leaving. I thought I had to stay there. I, I don't know why I thought that. I, I had to go to occupational therapy. Got to make a, something, paint a picture or, Excuse me, I'm a vice president of marketing. I don't think I'm going to paint a little paint by dots or whatever you got in. <laughs> no, I was nice. Do you like leather work? <laughs> so I've never, never done any. Well, why don't we try that? Maybe you'd enjoy that. So I give you a blank of leather that long. It's a belt, and it has the holes punched in it, and it's got the little loopy-doopy for the buckle with two snaps. And then you sit there during occupational therapy time with a hammer and a and different shaped things and Ooh, pretty star. Well I did that for about two hours of that and I told that girl she was a little social worker type. Look just if if I'd have had a daughter, she'd have been about the right age to be my daughter, you know. Uh, she said you're not going to really finish that very fast. And I said, I'm not going to finish this. And she said, she said, if you don't finish it, you'll never get out of here. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know. Uh, uh, but I got out of there, and, and several things happened to me that have been... Um, old-timer related and I think that you know I would say they were God things but I'm going to tell you something God's just running the whole show he always has been he always will be so I didn't get a special attention that day from God God's willing to give me special attention every day even when I don't deserve it and anything I have from the last drink I took till tonight I haven't done anything to deserve it I haven't done anything that would make me eligible for any of the rewards that I have. 
I think I've done what I'm supposed to have been doing better than I was doing it all the way. God doesn't care. But I'll tell you something. There's a room full of people that meet at the Allen Club 12 in Eau Claire, Wisconsin on Monday afternoons that care. And they make it their business to care. And they care too much some days. Back then, now they don't seem nearly as interested. But um, I had a guy that I drank with for 10 years, and he stopped to see me when I was in that hospital. And he was told by his company about two months before that, you either go to this place in Minneapolis and get sobered up or find he was 50-something, so he ain't going to find a new job to quit drinking. So here's a guy with a month and a half of sobriety, maybe, stopping to see me. Just, how you doing? How's it going? Get a hold of me when you get out. He stopped twice. Second time he stopped, they'd been talking that day there about getting a sponsor to try to explain him all that, what you should do and how you do that. Um, he happened to stop that day. Um, and so I got a sponsor that day. Now, I didn't get a sponsor because I thought it was a good idea. You should have a sponsor because they said you should. I got one so that I'd have one up on everybody the next morning in group. I already got one. No, no, I got one. He didn't, he didn't have a clue what to do. He, he really hadn't got into steps. Um, he had a sponsor. Uh, he went to the Monday 5.30 a.m. meeting. He was on the road a lot. Um, he, I got out of there. We got to the meeting. I had decided whatever it takes. I'm not going back to drinking. I never made a decision, whatever it takes, I'm going to turn spiritual and wonderful and Alcoholics Anonymous. I never made that decision. I just did not want to, could not go back and drink any more whiskey because it was clear to me from a number of sources and I didn't want to drink. So I went to the meeting. And he didn't know what to tell me. I'd call him up and ask him questions. He didn't have answers for us. He'd ask that group. They were, that group would, would have a meeting after meeting and say, okay, when he asks you this, tell him this. When he asks you this, tell him that. If he does this, do this. And so here's a guy helping me that didn't know what to do, getting the directions from 12, 15 other people in that AA meeting until the guy that was helping me had enough experience to do it and the dummy that was new had enough experience to stay there, just stay there and try to start doing some stuff. And then shortly after that, his territory got changed and he was gone. And then I sponsored myself for a year and a few months. If you're new, don't do that. Get a sponsor. I mean, I guess you could survive sober. I did. But, boy, I'll tell you what, it's a lot easier to go the other direction. So just me and Jesus sailing around there for a while. And you kind of interpret your own stuff, you know. And I don't think God really wants me to work Friday, so I'm not going to. And Well, Jim was gone. There wasn't anybody to go. How come you're not working? Um, and I got crazy in sobriety, 19 months uh, sober. I was going to commit suicide. I had the plan. I had made two practice runs over the Fox River in Green Bay. I was going to drive off the bridge. I hadn't drank. I hadn't used any drugs, but I hadn't slept for three days. I couldn't figure out what was the matter. Whenever I felt like that before or got that crazy, I knew it was because I drank two and a half quarts of whiskey yesterday, and you can't do that without getting a little nutty. And I hadn't drank any whiskey yesterday or for a lot of days before that. I had no idea, and I, I took her till about 2 in the morning, and I was either going to go over across that Holiday Inn courtyard and get drunk, 
or I was going to get a bottle and I was going to drive that company car as far as I could to Montana and leave the car and tell them where it was and start my life over without all this stress and pressure. I saw this Jerry guy who I didn't like very well and I called him up at 2.30 in the morning. And he built tires at the Unirail Tire Plant in Eau Claire for a long time. He always worked the day shift, 7 to 3. I called him at 2.30 in the morning. I said, Jerry, this is Bruce. What are you doing? He said, I'm sleeping, you dummy. Where are you? They always ask you that right away. Where are you? Um, and so I told him in a sentence or two, I said, I'm in Green Bay. I'm absolutely going crazy. I need some help. Will you help me? And he said, I will, but there's a few conditions. And I said, what are those? He said, I'll help you, but there's a few conditions. I said, yeah, I heard you the first time. What are, what are the conditions? He said, I'll help you, but there are a few conditions. And I finally started to get that I got to say yes, and then we're going to get the conditions, because as long as I'm calling the shots, I wind up suicidal in sobriety. I would have told you that day with a polygraph on my arm that I had been doing AA, going to a meeting a week, maybe, doing pretty good. Um, not, not doing really anything I should have been doing. I wasn't in a very often at first. Uh, with, on the weekends, John was talking, we'd go out and other couples, fellowship stuff, really kept the threads together for us. It was a great day when we watched two sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous, or one and an Al-Anon, getting an argument at Perkins. Yeah, I just ain't so smart either, are they? <laughs> Never realized, you know, that after you stop drinking, this stuff happens, you know. I, I thought you were supposed to sober up and get wonderful. And um, so I, I made a deal with the devil that night, and he said, I want you in my driveway tomorrow afternoon at 3.30. We are going to talk. And um, I said, what do I do right now? And he said, get on your knees alongside your bed and ask God to give you a good night's sleep and get up tomorrow and get here by 3.30. And I told him right there, I said, geez, i got to work till 5. He said, shut up. Well, that's pretty hard on somebody that was as sensitive as I was. <laughs> what do you think it feels to be the trip from hell 25 years sober? I, we have feel, I have feelings, you know. <laughs> the trip from hell, I loved it. Uh, it's, you've cleaned that up quite a bit, thank you. I, uh, I, I, he said, you haven't worked a day till 5 o'clock for five years. What the hell do you want to start tomorrow for? Be here. Click. Hung the phone up. And uh, I was there, and he let me out of his study at 11.30 that night, and he'd read the entire first seven chapters of the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, to me. And he said, now we're going to study those. And he literally made me go through there word by word by word by word. He read, he said, I want you to read. He said, you can't read and comprehend at the same time. I can read and comprehend. You can just listen. I'll stop whenever I want without having to interrupt you. It'll work out really good. You agree with that, don't you? Oh, yeah, good idea, sir. I was just going to recommend that. So that's what we did. And, and, but the first night he did that, I mean, he knew what was the matter with me. And, and I didn't. And it's important if you're an alcoholic tonight that you come to an understanding, at least of a basic understanding, of what's the matter with you. Because if you don't, you may not stay here. You've got to figure that out, and you've got to get some help doing it. It's right over there on the banner. You can't do this deal alone. 
I tried to do it as, as alone as I could because I don't want to tell you all my stuff. I don't want you to know about me. Then I can do whatever I want and thought you were going to stop doing that. You don't hear that if you don't let them in. Drunks are like that. We don't want people in our lives. You read the doctor's opinion, he said the phenomenon of craving and his obsession. And you know what an obsession is, don't you? I said, sure. And uh, do you know what a phenomenon is? I said, yeah. He said, what's a phenomenon? I said, well, you know. He said, yeah, I know, I know. I'm asking you, do you know? I said, yeah, well, it's like a flying saucer. <laughs> you can laugh, but I was right. <clears throat> Turns out that a phenomenon is something you can see, but you can't explain it. That's really the simple definition of that. And so, but he said, let's, let's use your thinking in here. So, and the flying saucer of craving, he said, that make any sense to you? Well, of course it doesn't make any sense to me. And he just did that 15 times with different words. He said, I got the problem figured out. He said, you can't benefit from this book because you don't even know what the hell the words mean. <laughs> He's right. I didn't know that. You know, you come to a difficult word, you just kind of skip over it. And uh, so I learned all the words. And I did everything in that book. I wrote another four-step inventory. I'd do one of those in the hospital to get out of there. I did that. Um, I don't remember much about it. I tried to write down all the stuff, and they had a few pages. You're supposed to write down all the nice things you've done. I couldn't think of any. Uh, that guy said over there, he said, did you love your mother? And I said, well, of course I did. He said, write that down. That was the first thing I got on my good list. I, I, it doesn't say anything in our book about writing a good list. This is make a list of what you fear and what you resent and what conduct you have done. It says sex conduct, but if you sneak right down the bottom of page 70, I'm just trying to help the new people now, it says, and other harms you have done. So that means if you smacked them upside the head with a beer bottle, you got to write that down. I never hit any big guy in a bar with a beer bottle because of any sexual problems, so I wouldn't have got it down. <laughs> so Jerry taught me that stuff. He taught me everything. He said, we're going to do this mechanically. And then um, he got taken out in a car crash, killed him. He was coming home from giving a talk over in eastern Minnesota, and uh, just 6.30 in the morning, another guy he sponsored called. And I, I took that inventory with Jerry to prove to him it wasn't going to make any difference. And I'll tell you what, it changed my whole life. Because it's the first solid piece of work where I wrote something down and did something that had something to do with Alcoholics Anonymous. You can't take a Chevy and put Ford parts in it. So don't take Alcoholics Anonymous and stick all this other crap in it either because it won't work. You've got to do AA. You can do a lot of other things. You can read. My wife is as good at Al-Anon as I know, and she has five bookcases or four bookcases full of spiritual books. She reads them all the time. She says, oh, God, you've got to read this book, you know. Well, I don't. She reads them to me sometimes, just like a parrot. Listen to this. And I, I'm like thinking, whoa says that in the chapter of the agnostics. They're, we don't have a patent on anything. Neither do them spiritual books. She just is hungry for that kind of stuff. She's as spiritual as anybody I know. If I could be half as spiritual as her, I could levitate up here. <laughs> She's good. I'm not. I screw up. You know, I got a bad mouth. I mess with newcomers. I told a guy here a couple weeks ago, I said, he's a cokehead. You should never do this to a coke guy. I said, is a guy looking in the window looking at you? <laughs> oh, uh, 
Got his blood flowing a little, though. He was paying attention after that, I'll tell you. But uh, so I did that stuff, and we started a couple meetings in town, and um, I've, I've, I always read the book to the people I sponsor. Um, and I, I don't do it because it's some A-approved way to do it, because um, I don't know if my sponsor much reads the book to anybody. You know, this kind of looks at, there's two ways to do this. You can read the cookbook and follow the directions, or you can work with the chef. He's a chef. I work with him. I watch what he does. I listen to what he says. I don't debate him much. He's 47 years sober, so he's got way too much time for me to be mouthing off with. So if he was a little closer, like 46, I might cock off once in a while. I try to do what he says I should do, and, and I'll tell you something. You know, he's got this evil reputation of being this crazy, maniacal guy in Alcoholics Anonymous, but I'll tell you what, he has never treated me disrespectfully ever once. He changed the course of my life when I was 13 years sober again. Another sponsor came in. I was heading into a dead end and didn't know it, and he got me heading in a positive direction with Alcoholics Anonymous. We started these groups. Well, I read this. I read these guys. I read, read that book a bajillion times. I've heard a bajillion people say, well, no, I was in a hospital, and I, I did a treatment inventory. I said, well, I know it, but, you know, it doesn't seem to be working good. Bob, you got arrested last week drunk. Why don't we try this one here, just see how it goes, you know. I don't care what it takes. I need to win their heart. I was taught, if you want a good sponsor, you get somebody who's ahead of you, somebody who's active or more active than you are that you respect. And you've got a great combination if you do that. But if you, one of those pieces is missing, it's too bad. You're done. And I've got a sponsor like that. And I've had sponsors like that. A couple other ones got taken out. Jim moved away. Uh, Tim's got a nerve disorder. He's gone. Jerry got taken out in a car wreck. Um, you know, I, was, I got one in California now because he didn't hear about those three. He'd never, never said yes. What do you do, kill sponsors? <laughs> the wonderful love stories in AA to me are the guy that came in the door and he sat down at the table shaking and talked to a guy and they had coffee and he asked to be a sponsor and 35 years later they're still doing it. That's a love story to me. My love story is different. I've had four lovers in my life but they have all saved my life. They have all made it happen for me. I couldn't do any of this deal by myself. I proved it. I almost died sober. I almost died drunk. And Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon and the combination of the fellowships and the programs have brought Joanne and I to a place where we can live pretty contented every day. Pretty contented every day. This mean guy in Los Angeles said he'd take my kid in, and he did. And he lived in this goofy mission out there for eight months and got 50 bucks a week room and board. Had to pay his own bus fare to go to the A meeting seven days a week. Had to put his own dollar in the basket, and if there's anything left, he could smoke cigarettes. And he did that for eight months. And he went to a meeting every day because he was in this hardcore collection of people that ain't making it. And when you're doing that good that you wind up in a skid row mission, you probably ought to listen to what they're telling you to do. And he did, thank God. And he got there because of a woman who started a group with me in Eau Claire who got sober on that group in California and retired and moved back to Eau Claire where she grew up. And she's the one that made that happen. And she didn't really make it happen any different than a lot of things happened for me. He called her and said, I can't stop drinking. What should I do? Because he loved this woman. Her name was Patty. And she talked to him from time to time. And she said, finally, I, I don't know what to tell you, Terry, but why don't you call Clancy? He'll know what to do. 
And so he did. Well, he didn't the first time. He just called drunk four days later and said, I can't keep drinking. What should I do? She said, did you call Clancy yet? She said, no. Hung up. That's the signal in AA to call Clancy, I guess. But it has turned out to be well beyond my wildest dreams. Um, when I'm slowing down and things don't look good and you're looking bad and God puts one at my door. Um, I go to the meeting that night. The guy over there said that you sponsor people. Would you sponsor me? I'd love to. A few conditions. What are they? There's a few conditions. What are they? There's a few conditions. I try to do what they did for me because, like our book says, this is our combined experience and knowledge. And if you do this, you will get a life beyond your wildest dreams. We do things different than the rest of the world. I was, I close with a story sometimes. I wasn't going to tonight. I had a fresh story for you, but you'll have to get maybe five years from now and come back and tell you the fresh one. Because three people have said, you can tell that story, aren't you? Sure. About a woman who was dying, and she had um, terminal illness. It was cancer. And she was really getting pretty bad off and called her minister to come over and they will make some arrangements and plan the funeral and go through all those details that need to happen and uh, so they talked and he said a prayer and he said I really get going but you know if you need anything you call me and and I'll probably stop by and make sure you're doing okay and uh, he was just about the door and she said wait a minute pastor there's one more thing she said yeah what is it and and he she said you know could you, could you have me buried with a fork in my, just hanging on to this fork? He said, I could, and he said, whatever you want. It's your deal, we'll do whatever you want. But he said, I've never heard of that as a tradition or anything. Well, why would you want that? She said, well, you know, when I was a kid growing up and a little girl, and we would have Thanksgiving feasts and Christmas Easter time, we'd have these big family get-togethers and we would roast turkeys and hams and it was wonderful. She said, you cannot, and I've been so blessed to have a family and all this food to eat. And, and she said, you know, my old aunts would come out with their aprons on to the kitchen and they'd say, now, okay, we're going to clean up the table, but save your fork. The best is yet to come. And so you hang on, man, chocolate pie and pumpkin pie and whipped cream and German chocolate cake. Best. Oh, it's the best. You know, it's good stuff. And I really think that's what we do here. We take care of each other. When you can't pick up your plate, I'll pick it up for you. You need help with the dishes, I'll help you with the dishes. And when I'm not doing good, they say, you're doing okay, you all right. We take care of each other. We know the secret in Alcoholics Anonymous, and the secret's this. If you stay here and do this, you'll get a nice life, and you'll get sober, and you'll have a great time. But you always want to remember two things. Don't forget to save your fork, because the best is yet to come. Thanks. <laughs>